you know, everybody thinks they have to buy a hospital. You don't. I mean, with the right feasibility and the right demographics, a de novo concept works quite well. Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified small animal surgeon in Pennsylvania. We are gearing up for the Veterinary Financial Summit, September 18th and 19th. It is completely virtual, and it's also completely live. We'll be talking about personal finance, including investing, student debt, entrepreneurship, as well as practice ownership, practice finance, and management topics. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more and sign up. We would like to thank our beloved partners, CareCredit, the popular third-party payment company, Televet, a complete platform that allows you to do telemedicine, client communication, and take remote payments, Royal Canin, fine maker of amazing pet food, Galaxy Vets, a new corporation that allows all employees to become shareholders in the entire organization, Eckerd Enterprises, which allows you to invest passively in oil and gas, and Securos, which is a company that sells orthopedic implants, instruments, and fine suture material. So thank you to our partners. Our guest today is Terry O'Neill. Terry is a CPA, and he's a partner at Katz, Sapper & Miller's Veterinary Services Group. He has over 30 years of experience helping vet hospitals grow by providing business, financial, and tax advice. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to have a little shout out for our audience. Thank you for listening. And Terry, welcome to the show as well. Thank you. So, Thank you very much. As a CPA, you analyze the financial data of over 600 hospitals that are members of the veterinary study groups. Could you please share a few key lessons from your experience with them? Sure. Yeah, I, I think one of the most important things is that most of the veterinary hospitals want to learn how to improve their operations. And it starts with the financial performance of their hospitals. And what we've learned is that it starts with teaching the owners how to understand and read financial statements is the first part of it. The second part would be also setting up systems that are reliable, that will provide reliable data to them. And then um, the, the most challenging part will be taking that knowledge of knowing that they would like to improve in a certain category and implementing a strategy and an accountability plan to help them accomplish their goal. And it's a fascinating experience to go through with veterinarians. And, and once again, it's setting the systems up so they can understand what they need to do to improve those different areas of opportunity. Yeah, and veterinary practice has certainly evolved dramatically over the past few years. And so what trends do you think that have been happening lately will continue in the future? Now, that's a great question. And it's We've spent a lot of time working with um, clients regarding this question, and I think the two most important aspects of successful veterinary hospital ownership in the future will be the utilization of technology, um, and I'll come back to that, and then learning how to leverage the skills of the doctor. The traditional model has been around for a long time, and it's worked quite well. With the advent of more veterinarians retiring than entering the workforce now, we have to learn how to better leverage the doctors. And 
how the doctors can utilize their staff to assist them um, take care of the client needs. And a prime example would be, you know, how many patients per hour can a doctor comfortably see and treat in a given hour in a small animal setting. And the simple concept of going from 30-minute to 20-minute appointment sounds pretty daunting and is pushed back upon very, very hard by the veterinarians that have not been able to utilize and leverage their staff. But that simple shift of leveraging the doctor to have the people they need to provide the services to go from, for example, the example I gave, two to three appointments per hour would increase that doctor's opportunity almost 50%. So I think the leverage is absolutely necessary and, and mastering how to leverage your staff so important. Um, utilization of technology too and how we communicate or how veterinarians communicate with the pet owners and how veterinarians track and, and measure and monitor their patient files, their treatment plans, and uh, from start to finish, the utilization of technology will make for a better customer service also. So I really think that technology and leverage are two are probably the most critical areas that need to be addressed. So Terry, you're a CPA and you're also a CVA, Certified Valuation Analyst. When a practice owner is ready to sell a practice, what advice would you give them to optimize their financial documents and maximize the sale? In other words, how do they improve profits? Sure. Um, I think it starts a couple of years before they're ready to sell. I think the the situations that we've been involved in, they call up and they say, hey, I want to sell my hospital. Well, you need to do that a couple of years in advance, and you really need to go through an assessment of your hospital's operating performance for, let's say, the last two or three years. And with that hospital assessment, you'll identify areas to improve profitability. And at that point in time, you sit down and say, okay, if I do want to sell my hospital and, you know, if my, if my hospital is grossing $1 million and I can improve my profitability by 1%, what does that mean to my hospital valuation? And in very simple terms, that's $10,000. And if the hospital is valued at eight times earnings, for example, that will improve the enterprise value by $80,000. So I think a couple of years in advance is vitally important. The other thing that's very important is to get your financial house in order, for lack of a better way to say that. Have your prior year tax returns um, available. Have, have your accountant that's helped you put the tax returns together assure that your financial records and documents agree with what's on your financial statements or on your tax returns, excuse me. Make sure that you have copies of your employment contracts. Make sure that you have copies of your equipment agreements. Have all of the financial documents ready so that when there is a a buyer that would like to take a look at your hospital, that all of that data is in, we call it a data room, that you grant access to so they can make a complete assessment at the time that they're going there. The hospital transactions that we've been involved with where that information is not available, they run the risk of losing the buyer's interest that they'll go talk to somebody else that has all of that information available. I kind of use the example of, you know, when somebody sells a house, it's always a good idea for a seller to have an inspection report done before they list it so they know they need, they know what needs to be fixed before they sell it. And it's kind of doing, it's kind of this, the same mentality, the same process, but that it's a very smooth um, exchange of information. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's just like, uh, just like w- before you go and sell a house, you don't want to get to the point where someone wants to buy your house and all of a sudden, oh, I've got to go fix this and that. Uh, so that certainly makes sense. 
And so having financial documents organized and all the important documents for the practice organized, and then also deciding and, and taking a look at your financial situation as a practice owner at least two or three years ahead of time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in addition to that, I would also have the respective practice management system reports available for a potential buyer so they can look at the different components of revenue, invoice counts, production by doctor. Um, all of that information would be readily available for somebody to, to do their due diligence. Mm-hmm. All right. So I can't just decide, you know, two or three months before, two or three weeks before I want to retire. No, no, you three no you really, you, 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 <laughs> yeah, it really is a process. And, 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 you know, you really want to make sure that you, you give yourself time to make those improvements so that you get full value. You know, once again, you know, the example I gave earlier, every 1% could potentially be $80,000 in proceeds to the seller. All right. So certainly there's a trend toward practice owners selling to corporations. And so do you have any advice for practice owners who are hesitant to sell to a corporation and would prefer to sell to an individual, uh, whether that's a a vet, a manager, or a couple of vets? Yeah, I mean, there absolutely is hope. There's no doubt there's hope. And we've spent Um, a significant amount of time helping owners that do not want to sell to corporate to um, look and understand it's basically a delayed sale concept, Um, whereas if a buyer is willing to sell or if a buyer is willing to pay, let's say, a corporation to pay 10 times earnings for a hospital, a delayed sale concept could be used where an associate could buy in over a period of time and the seller would then retain a majority of the profits during that delayed sale period of time to get them closer to the same sales price they could get from a higher multiple. So that, that's absolutely a possibility. The other thing that I like to remind, remind owners of is that dilution is a good thing. And, and I get criticized at times for bringing that up, but the right way to dilute a business, and you don't need to wait until you want to retire to consider this, is that I like to give the example, if you have a hospital that's able to grow 3% per year, a simple 3% per year, you can dilute up to 9% of your equity in that hospital, and your 91% you retain is going to be worth your 100% without that growth. So there's, there's ways you can look at the modeling, and there's ways that you can incentivize your associate doctors to develop a partnership that, that your diluted model is going to be worth more than your, your 100% majority model. So absolutely, there's hope for independent practitioners. Uh, the independent hospital is, is being challenged by the corporate model right now, but the independent hospitals have so much to offer to associates and that I, I truly believe that, that a majority owner should consider dilution of ownership percentage and allow associate veterinarians to to share in the appreciation of the hospital that they're helping grow. I just think that is a such a powerful tool that an independent hospital can do and provide to their associates that the corporations I don't think can compete with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when you say dilution, you mean one practice owner or a couple of practice owners don't own the whole thing. You mean that they let That's the correct. other associates buy in? Okay. That is correct. So, Terry, 
On the flip side, what advice would you give someone who wants to buy a practice? What strategies can we use to find a good deal? And given the market right now, are there any good deals anywhere? To answer your question, yes, there are good deals. There really are. And give us, I guess give the, us addresses. The, pr- <laughs> uh, the, the, the first thing I think that, that buyers have to do is that they need to do their homework. They need to get some education on, on how veterinary hospitals are valued. And what are the what are the what are the deal points? And and the, the other thing is really important is they need to build, be to build a team to help them, and that you know to, to bring in advisors that can walk them pr- through the process and and provide them representation to make sure they don't make a bad deal. There's there's quite a few things that I ask potential buyers to do. Probably one of the most important is a feasibility analysis and really understanding the demographics within typically the the three to five mile radius. It usually ends up being a three mile radius around the hospital to understand the demographics of the household, the number of pets, and how many how much money is being spent for the for the veterinary care and what percentage of those people are actually visiting the veterinary hospital. So you you've really got an understanding of how much potential revenue is in the area compared to the competition. Other really important things I think that buyers have to consider is the condition of the facility. And will that facility be big enough to continue to grow? Or or are you buying a three-exam room hospital with two doctors that is landlocked? Well, that I, I think they really need to put a lot of thought into the facility and where they think the hospital is going in the future. And the other really important um, item to consider is if they do want to grow the hospital and add additional doctors, what's the likelihood they can recruit to that location? Is it a place that other veterinarians want to relocate their lives and families to, um, to come live there? Or is that going to be a challenge? Because it's going to be a challenge that's going to be a risk. And, you know, finding good deals, you know, a lot of it's relationship driven. You know, from a standpoint of trying to find hospitals in certain areas, we have a lot of clients that want to relocate to a certain location, whether it's back home, whether it's closer to um, a spouse's family, whatever the reason, you know, might be. And, you know, one of the things that, that has worked quite well is, is you know, have, have the veterinarian reach out to the, the vendors and the manufacturer's representatives that work in that specific market area, reach out to them, introduce yourself, tell them that you're looking, if they know of anybody. Go ahead and reach out to potential sellers. You can you can do some research to find out who owns veterinary hospitals in a certain area and what their ages are, and if they're in an age group that might consider retiring, go ahead and just make the introduction to say, hey, I'd love to sit down and talk sometime if you'd be, ever be interested in selling. And I wish there was one magical strategy I could give you, but I think it's a combination of, of just a couple different things that, that seem to work fairly well. So, Terry, I've heard that the best deals are often in places no one wants to live. Would you say that that could be true? That could be. That could be. And, you know, a startup hospital is not out of the realm of reality. You know, everybody thinks they have to buy a hospital. You don't. I mean, with the right feasibility and the right demographics, a de novo concept works quite well. And there's been quite a few financial models built around the return on investment related to a startup hospital versus the acquisition of a hospital. So if you can't find a deal in an area where you want to be, there's nothing that says you can't go start your own. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about KPIs, uh, key performance indicators. Mm -hmm. And so do you like to follow the typical ranges for those, or do you look at them differently? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a lot of different KPIs we like to look at. We've got a, a standard weekly KPI report we like to look at, and, and it's fairly straightforward, but it's simply, you know, the revenue collected, invoices per DVM, the average invoice, how much did we spend on drugs and medical supplies, and how much did we spend on non-doctor labor, both being divided into gross revenue. You know, if, we, if you take a step back and think about veterinary hospital financial performance, you know, 60 to 70 cents of every dollar that comes in the door goes right back out in labor dr and drugs and supplies. And so successful veterinary hospital owners that monitor that on a regular basis can really have an impact. And if there's an issue of going outside of those boundaries, they know about it quite soon versus waiting until maybe their month-end financial statements are done six to seven weeks after that they did not know they had possibly um, a KPI that was going outside of the boundaries they had set. So I think I cannot tell, tell you enough how, how much I endorse KPIs and how every single owner and every single manager in the hospital should be using them to help improve performance. So Terry, you wrote an article about how to avoid mischarges. Do you have a feel for the percentage of missed revenue in general practices? Yes, it's quite substantial. It's typically five to 10%. And, you know, that's an amazing amount of money. As hard as the veterinarians work is to know that they're missing five to 10% of all revenue does not get charged for. So what kind of tips would you recommend to avoid this? There's quite a few. Um, there's quite a few, but we really think it starts with how the doctor is interacting and leveraging his or her support staff that are helping him or her see the patients. And allowing the staff to input the charges as the doctors making their recommendations. And then after the staff has done that and input those charges, the doctor then can review it to assure that it's accurate. I just think it's important that the doctor not sit there and enter the charges. We're big believers in templates. And what I mean by templates is that for the top 20 or 30 reasons why people might go to a veterinary hospital, that a template is built so that if I'm bringing my pet in to see the doctor because of an inflamed ear or an itchy ear, then there's an ear template that comes up that the staff can bring up with all the recommended charges for that that the doctor just needs to sign off on. And if you can build those templates for the top 20 or 30 or however many items the hospital would like to use that, it's going to avoid missed charges because those charges are already built in to that template and that standard operating procedure that uh, the hospital has implemented for that procedure. So I think the other the other item that I think is very critically important is that written estimates are provided to clients so that if I bring my pet in, I'm provided with the written estimate as to what the workup's going to be. And that helps on the communication and what the expectation for the fees are going to be. And then it also allows the doctor, if a client declines a recommendation, that the doctor's got that notated in their medical file. And the other area with tracking those declines, it will allow owners in the future to go back over a period of time, let's say three months, and track all the declines. You know, I want to know all the labs that were declined over a given period of time. And that might help us understand price elasticity a little better. It not only does it help improve the mischarges, it improves the doctor's medical record documentation, but it also gives us data to help us decide on how we're going to set our fees for our charges. And if we are getting consistent declines or if we're getting consistent yes and approvals, then we might have an opportunity to raise that fee. So I think there's a lot of ways to do that, but having the staff input the charges, have the doctor double check that and using the declines or three of the, using the templates and using declines are, are really good, um, useful ways to, to make sure that those charges are being captured. 
Right. That's great. So, so actually tracking the things that clients decline. And then I mm-hmm. want to go back a little bit because you said price elasticity. Can you tell us more about what that means? Yes. It's um, pricing in veterinary medicine is, is challenging. Um, that's something we talk about on a daily basis and not to offend anybody, but a lot of time veterinarians set their fees using the gas station pricing model. Well, the hospital down the street's charging this, so this is what I, that's what I'm going to charge. And that's not meant as an insult to anybody. That's just the way they do it. Well, you know, if they're charging this much for an exam or vaccine, that's much we're going to charge. And they really don't have a lot of science behind how they set those fees or what their costs are associated with that. And what price elasticity means is that how do we know what somebody's willing to pay for a particular service? Well, the elasticity will tell us that if we raise it too much, they'll start to say no. And if it's too low, they'll say yes all the time. So that elasticity lets us measure and monitor where we should be from a pricing standpoint. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. No problem. So Terry, as an aside, we may or may not have some paranoid uh, listeners who are concerned about embezzlement. Is it possible to suspect embezzlement simply by looking at financial statements? In other words, being away from the practice, not in the trenches. There are, and every single listener should be paranoid about embezzlement. A very good friend of mine, Marsha Heinke, who's a veterinarian and a CPA out of Ohio, did a survey back probably about 10 years ago, and she's permitted me to talk about it, And that the survey came back and 67% of the veterinary hospitals that answered the survey had been embezzled from. 67%. The really bad joke is the other 33% don't know it yet. The red flags would absolutely be when we're looking at cost of goods sold or direct costs. If that's greater than 30%, we start to get concerned. All veterinarians that we know use the same basic vendors in small animal medicine, and if they're marking their products and services up the right way, their cost of goods sold should not be greater than 30%. So that's that's one thing that we look at right away. The other thing we like to look at is, are there irregular variances between historical and target percentages? You know, for example, if we, if we target our vaccine costs to be 25 to 30% of vaccine revenue, and one month they're 5%, and the next month they're 35%, and then they drop back. And if those costs keep bouncing around, our vendors aren't changing their prices that much. They shouldn't be moving like that. The other thing in looking at financial statements, the, one of the things that we always look at is how much did the hospital grow during a given period? So during the first quarter of 2021, if the hospital grew, let's say, 10% in top-line revenue growth, then why are certain expenses up 25%? You know, what what caused that? What was the reason behind that? And then the other thing is always comparing against historical performance. You know, this year versus last year, not only dollar amount, but what percentage of total revenue was that? So I think there's a couple real high-level items that you can look at fairly quickly to identify that. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And so embezzlement is one sort of crisis that can happen in a, a vet practice. And and you did a talk last year for the AVMA convention that was about leading through a crisis. And part of that talk was about contingency plans. And so what are some of those what-if scenarios that a practice might need to develop a contingency plan for? Yeah, uh, 
one of the first that comes to mind is a doctor shortage. If a doctor gets injured or has an extended leave of absence, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle that? We've learned through COVID, you know, what to do if we don't have the same number of staff available. How are we going to operate? What's our operating procedure going to be if we've got a staff of 10 and, you know, only six of them can come to work? What are we going to do? And so you can execute it on it fairly quickly. I think an often overlooked um, what-if scenario is, what if IT systems fail? What if we get hacked? And that has happened over the last year to a number of hospitals where they've been held hostage from a standpoint of some, some IT failures. And a lot of hospitals have no backup plan in place. It's going back to the old paper method of processing information. I think the other really important catastrophic events that should always be planned for, I hope nobody ever has to pull them out, are fire, floods, or something catastrophic along those lines that, okay, we can't practice out of our hospital for the next 90 days. What are we going to do? And whether that's getting a, a rental storage or a trailer to use and to bring on to on-site or, you know, what are we going to do if these things happen? And I think people will be a lot better planned having dealt with COVID because I don't know of anybody that had a plan for what we've been through the last 13 months. And what we've learned from that, we need those plans in place. And we absolutely have to set aside the working capital. And, and what I mean by working capital is how much cash do we have in reserve that if we do have an interruption of business for a week or two weeks or three weeks or even four weeks or some of our friends in, in some of the COVID ravaged areas where they, where they were down 70% of revenue for two months, you need working capital and a contingency plan in place with your bank and your landlords to make sure that that your operations can continue once the crisis is over. Right. Good reminders. Terry, you're a partner at Katz, Sapper & Miller, which is located in Indianapolis. What can you and your firm do for our listeners and their practices? You mentioned a variety of uh, topics. What do you help with specifically? Our main goal is to help our clients improve their profitability. It's the easiest way to say that. We help them manage their tax bills uh, from a tax um, compliance standpoint, but improving profitability will also improve business value. So we really focus in on reviewing the financial systems and performance of the hospital and identify what the opportunities are. But it's pretty easy for most practitioners or owners of veterinary hospitals to go out and find out what best practices are with respect to financial benchmarks. The real challenge is, is how do we facilitate and implement change? If a, a good example would be if somebody's labor is at 48% of gross revenue and they want to reduce that down to 40%, there's a number of steps that need to occur and happen to accomplish that. And that's kind of, um, we, we like to say, you know, helping our clients solve the, the knowing doing gap. You know, I know I need to do something to improve it. I just don't know how to do it. And then if I'm going to do it, you need to help us teach our staff how to do it and how we're going to keep a scorecard on it and then how we're going to reward those people to help us do it. So it's, it's an evolving process. Most of the time, it, the results are very positive. And um, that's really what we do in a nutshell. I could talk a little bit longer about that, but that's not, I don't think we need to go that far into detail on that right now. Great. Well, thank you for the recap. What important questions should we have asked you? I already added one in when I talked about dilution. So that's, um, you know, I think it's the most important thing that, that I see out there, the biggest risk that I see in veterinary medicine right now is how do we recruit and retain 
staff, not only doctors, but the support staff that helps the doctors. And I think that is the that is the biggest challenge ahead of us. And I think that a significant amount of focus should be put upon retaining staff. And I won't get into the, the specifics, but the loss of one doctor, what does that mean to your hospital? If you're a two doctor or a three doctor hospital, what does that cost you as an owner? And what is it gonna cost you to recruit and try to replace? Or if you can't replace, what does that mean to your enterprise value? And putting systems in place so that you've got a culture so that you are the employer of choice so you can recruit, but then retain those people. And I know this isn't really a question. I'm giving a little bit of commentary, but there's a tremendous amount of hospitals that are being challenged by other businesses increasing average hourly rates of pay. And how do we compete with that? What, what do we do as owners when your lead technician walks into you and says, guess what? I'm getting $3 more an hour down the street. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do? Well, you have, you have to have a strategy. That's almost a what-if scenario. I think that I, if I could backtrack a little bit, it's almost a little bit of a what-if scenario as to how do you combat that. And as we go through that, you know, and as your labor pool increases, you need to go through a, a calculation, okay, for you to absorb that. Or first of all, what does it cost if the lead technician leaves? And what can I do with respect to my fee structure to recapture the increase in labor? Remember, your labor is costing you almost 40% uh, of total revenue. So I think keeping your fee structure and your labor retention structure in place just has to be top of mind at all times. And um, I just think the retention of staff is so vitally important. All right. I love it. <laughs> a lot of good information. There's, the, Yeah, I have, I have a bunch of questions now. That <laughs> <laughs> but I think we may have to have you pick it up at the Vet Financial Summit in September. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so now we come to our final question. What is your best advice for our listeners? Be humble. I've got a couple. Be humble. Do what you're good at. Surround yourself with people that are good at things maybe you're not good with. As, as owners, we all think we can do it all, all the time, and understanding that other people can maybe do things that you're not quite as good at, I think is incredibly important. I think you have to build a great team. I think the team around you will define how successful you are. One of the models we have at our office is we try to have fun every day, you know, actually have fun and enjoy what we do, and that meaningful, meaningfully um, behind that, and that the other really important piece of advice is not only know your numbers, but know what those numbers mean. You know, if somebody tells you your labor should be a certain percentage, know what that means and educate yourself as to what they should be and what you can do to improve them. But, you know, being humble and having fun are just, just so important personality traits that I look for um, on a regular basis. So uh, I think that's probably the, the best piece of advice I could give to them. All right. Thanks, Terry. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think you had a, a lot of good points today. Thank you for sharing. Um, for You're welcome. Our listeners who are considering selling their practice, I think the, the best piece of, of advice is start well ahead of um, your deadline. You know, two years, two years is a good number to start putting things into place to maximize, maximize your sale. So let's, uh, Terry will be a guest uh, during the Veterinary Financial Summit. So if you like this kind of stuff, this is what we talk about during the whole weekend. Thanks for joining us, Terry. 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Don't forget to sign up for the Veterinary Financial Summit, which is going to be virtual on September 18th and 19th. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more and sign up. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.